Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I'm still in Brooklyn. It's still winter, but the end of my time in the U.S. is coming to an end. By the end of the month, I'll be back in Ghana. Hooray! But this week, I'm doing a little bit of a sneak preview of Journeys Back to Africa with a longtime friend. My guest this week was born in Illinois to immigrants from Rwanda and Uganda. She is an acclaimed vocalist and songwriter. She's built her career on transatlantic sonicism. I love that word. And storytelling. Her latest album, Holy Room, live at Alt Oper with Frankfurt Radio Big Band, this is Salon Africana 2020, was recorded in an 18th century German opera house in May 2019 and is currently nominated for, wait for it, wait for it, a 2021 Grammy Award for Best Jazz Vocal Album. Somi is a Soros Equality Fellow, a USA Doris Duke Fellow, a TED Senior Fellow, an Inaugural Association of Performing Arts Presenters Fellow, a former artist in residence at the Park Avenue Armory, UCLA Center for the Art of Performance, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, and the Barishnikov Art Center. She is also the founder of Salon Africana, a boutique arts agency and record label that celebrates the very best of contemporary African artists working in the music and literary arts. Somi, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. What a wonderful bio. I love reading bios that are so acclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Florence. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's just jump right in. So mm -hmm. I always like to start with my question, which is, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So where am I from? I always identify sort of as a hyphenated person. So I'm Rwandan, Ugandan, American. I'm from in the U.S. I would claim Illinois as a, you know, where I grew up and also, but I've lived in New York for a number of years and recently moved to Georgia, to Atlanta. So I'm a New Yorker, Harlemite, Midwesterner, East African, <laughs> but also lived in Lagos for a while as a, a musician, a global citizen. So Okay, of course, of course, of course. But can I say thank you for being an Atlantan right now? Hey, thank you. Thank I you, got thank to you. vote. She got to vote. She got <laughs> to put some, put some roots down in a That's place where right. we definitely needed every vote to count. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So tell us more about your background and your inspiration. My background. Uh, well, you know, I was born in the United States when my parents, my father was doing his postdoc at the University of Illinois in veterinary medicine. And we were here for about three years. Then we moved to Zambia for a while. He was with uh, WHO. We moved. My father is originally from Rwanda. My mother is originally from Uganda. They met in Kenya and then met again in London and then the rest is history. <laughs> and so we moved to Zambia and then came back to the States uh, when I was eight years old and where he took up a professorship in Illinois. And that became where I spent most of my formative years, end of primary school and, and all of my secondary school education was in the States and in, in Illinois. After college, I moved to Kenya and Tanzania for a while, for about a year and a half. When I thought I was going to be a medical anthropologist, I was there kind of exploring certain things. 
okay, I never knew that about you. Yeah. <laughs> Which to me is very much the same thing, you know, as, as singing. <laughs> because okay. Oh, you'll have to tell us more about that. Yeah, because basically, you know, you're looking at cultural modes of healing. And to me, it's very connected to what I do as an artist or I try to do as an artist, or at least what it's done for me, I should say. As an artist. Sure, sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So after that time in East Africa, I moved to New York. And ever since then, I have been pursuing a career in the arts as a musician, as a composer, and as a writer, performer, <laughs> more hyphens. <laughs> right, but, of course. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been doing. To answer your first question, which is, what is your craft? So I'm an artist, mostly as a musician, but really a song maker and a storyteller. Awesome. Awesome. So Somi, what was your first language? My first language was English. Uh, my oh, okay. parents were from two different tribes, you know and did not speak each other's tongue, respective tongue. So they spoke in English, which was what people spoke in Uganda and Kenya, and obviously in England. And we grew up speaking that. But I speak my mom's language. I shouldn't say I speak it fluently, but I understand it most. And I would say that's because she was the one at home speaking sure. more of it. And my father was even though he was a scientist, he was very much a linguist, naturally. So mm -hmm. he really picked up her language fluently, you know. And so at some point, they were mostly communicating in her language, you know, around us more so than in... So that's in, what you heard. That's what I right. heard more of, you mm -hmm. know. But really, as a Miranda, as, as being his daughter, where I'm from, you kind of follow your father's line. And so technically, I should speak Kinyaranda fluently, but <laughs> unfortunately, okay. I do not. So English was my first language, but I grew up kind of hearing that. And I've studied Swahili and I, you know, I can understand a great deal of the language, but I can't unfortunately speak either fluently. Okay. Okay. Well, understanding is half the battle. It is. Yeah. Because secrets are passed just in hearing half the That's time. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Very exactly. True. Yeah. Yeah. So you want us to be a medical anthropologist, but has music always been part of who you were? Like, did you sing in the choir? Did you play instruments? How did music become your identity? Yeah, you know, music, I would say yes, it's always been a part of my life. But I'm not one of those artists who kind of came up like knowing this is the thing and doing all the things that kind of prepared them for this professional moment in their lives. I think that's twofold. One is because one of the reasons is, is the fact that as a child of immigrants or African parents and people who kind of coming from perhaps more conservative background, being an artist wasn't really something that I thought I could do. I didn't know it was something I'd be even allowed to do or, and you just didn't, I didn't really see professional artists around me personally. I only saw people in academia and medicine and, you know, those sorts of fields. And so I didn't really think that I didn't know that it was an option. I thought of it as like a way to be well-rounded. So, but when I think about who I was as a child, and even when my mother tells the story, she's like, oh, she was always singing, you know. <laughs> but when I think about who I was, especially when we were in Zambia, I was that person who was always, I was that girl who was always in all the plays, the musicals, always, you know, going for the lead and doing all these things and really wanting to storytell, to be a storyteller, sure. to play out these stories that I would come up with myself or that were, you know, being told to me. And then there was this shift that happened when we moved back to the United States, where we're in a predominantly white community. There's a lot of ignorance around Africa in the 80s, you know, a lot of ignorance, also from teachers who really kind of 
I dealt with a lot of racism, you know, and I really kind of, I went through this period of quietude in a way, not socially, but like where I wasn't really comfortable sharing my voice. I had a very strong British accent back then. I, you know, I really was trying not to be the other person in the room, capital O other person in the room, you know? Right. And I think there was a silencing that happened and there was a discomfort that they had with dealing, you know, with seeing a confident black girl child, you know, knowing themselves, knowing their heritage, knowing, I recall a number of kind of small confrontations that I would have with those teachers and not in a like, you know, in the way that you just question like, but why? as a child who's been told that it's okay to, to ask these questions or it's to know that you, to have parents who have allowed me to, to be a whole person, right. And to express myself in a whole way. And then somebody trying to like quieten that down. So, you know, we were trained to ask questions. If somebody's telling you you can't do something, not because it's disrespectful, but because for whatever, for their own reason. And so I, I remember a lot of those questions I remember a lot of those kind of altercations and that kind of tension that was always sort of present that really, I think a bit of, there was a silencing that happened where I was, whether I was performing or even reading, you know, my stories, I used to write a lot also as a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when I think back to it now, I know it was just coming from a place of their own insecurity and their own racism and sure. this, but at the time I didn't understand it. So you know, as a child, you start think, well, maybe some, I'm doing something yeah. wrong. And then you don't really, you can't really question because they're older than you and yeah. there's all mm-hmm. this stuff, but you're questioning, but then the, the responses are leaving you with more questions. So you're like, right. so I feel like I went through a stretch really of silencing. Like, and so at that point I stopped using my voice and I started studying the cello. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, I remember just feeling as though I always think about that moment as my way of still being connected to something that gave me a great amount of joy, which was music, but not having to speak, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so I did that. How long did you play cello? Really through university. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And it wasn't until I went to Kenya and Tanzania, that was like the first time that I had been without, without it. Instrument. Yeah. Wow. Since I was about eight. Yeah. And so then I would say it was that time in, and I'll tell you that in in undergrad, I studied cultural anthropology and African studies. Those were my majors. And I, when I went to Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, I remember just going and being able to kind of lay down a lot of romanticism that shows up when you've been raised away from Mm -hmm. home. You know, I really wanted to understand home for myself, not these sort of touch and go holiday experiences of it that I used to have, you know, the times that we were fortunate enough to go home or, which wasn't that often, frankly, growing up because there were a lot of kids and it was just far and it was the eighties and Uganda was very unstable, very rare. And so when I finally was at a point that I could just be in East Africa from my own point of view my own experiences. And that's why I chose Kenya and Tanzania, which was next door. So I could dip mm-hmm. home and see family. Right. And, and not that. feel, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. like really wanted it to be my own experience, you know? Yeah. And so, and I think what that time gave me, it gave me an opportunity to understand, release that romanticism, but also kind of come to terms with this American identity that I had been shrugging away. Like I'd been sho- mm-hmm. like shoving away from myself for a long time. I'd been like, mm-hmm. 
you know, who would I have been had I been raised back home? Like I was constantly like trying really? to get back to like who I was, you know, sure. I was just yeah. always this like culturist, you know, that's why I think in college, that's why I was studying those things, you know, I was always in pursuit of. Sure. And I have a feeling your studies brought that out of you as well, because you were looking into these lives of different, you know, time periods and different cultures. And you're like, oh, well, well that I speaks think to me. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. I mean, I think I chose that line of studying because identity was always a question. Even from high school, it was a mm-hmm. big question in my heart. You know, mm-hmm. it was really like the importance of identity, the importance of heritage, the importance. I mean, I remember... We'd go to these annual Ugandan, it was called Ugandan North American Association. Yeah, we all have them. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and I remember giving an impassioned speech when I was like 16 about, we need to have culture camp and we need to da 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 I mean, like, so I was already that person. (laughs) And so when I discovered cultural anthropology, I was like, oh my God, these are all those questions, you know? Um, And obviously African studies, you know, for my own kind of personal heritage. And so after that, it was just moving towards, the whole journey had been moving towards the continent. And once I was on the continent, I realized certain parts of myself that I needed to not, I shouldn't discard like who I am as an American because I'm both. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think really was this opportunity to kind of heal that, like that sort of what I felt though was some kind of fracture of the cultural self, you know? And so Mm -hmm. it really gave that sense of peace. I talk about it all the time. It sounds kind of cliche, but this notion of when you know, when you know where you're from, you know where you want to go. And so after that year, suddenly having, like having a sense of peace about where I was from and how I kind of could position myself in an African context, it gave me a lot of clarity about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And to me, that was totally 100% towards music. And it's almost like, oh, that larger question has been somehow resolved, which is like, what is the next question I have? And it was like, well, what's the other thing in my heart? And suddenly it was just so clear, you know, that it was going to be music. Um, and, And that's when really my journey began with, you know, moving to New York and deciding to pursue music. And Sure, sure. So you played music before, but then you are a singer most, right? So you came into the, a vocalist, right? So, so then how did you find that voice? How did you refine that voice? So you, you had this discovery, you decided you're leaving, but how did the vocalist in you reemerge? Well, I'd say a few things, therapy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When you have, when you like literally like kept something inside of you, yeah. There's a breaking open, you know, and and therapy, I say it, I was saying it in jest, but I say it in the sense of like the music really was a way of like me just deciding to commit to exploring my voice. That was sort of a journey, a therapeutic journey, right? Because there's this release, there's this catharsis, there's this breaking open, there's this exploration of emotions that you don't really realize have been inside of you, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I believe the voice did for me at least. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think I really just decided to study and to understand the voice as an instrument, to understand Mm -hmm. the technical side of things that support producing sound. And yeah, it was really about just deciding to study and deciding to, you know, take risks, really. Sure, and so you took a very professional route, basically. So you studied, you, you know, learned the craft in another way, as opposed to just kind of finding it in practice. You, I mean, practice, of course, but you actually really 
studied music and studied voice through classes, through institutions? Mostly private teachers. Um, okay. I did end up going back to graduate school in a field called performance studies, which is sort of an anthropological look at performance. It's again, oh, okay. kind of coming from a social science side of things, not a, a studio program as they're called. It's not a okay. class that's, it's not a track that's about uh, technique. So most of my teachers were private teachers. I don't have a music degree. I have other degrees from social science. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you took a journey to Africa, you came back and you were reborn. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so this is where I, I asked my guests to tell me why the where, how did you come to be living, working, playing where you live and where you have lived? So where you live now and maybe where you have lived in the past. Well, again, just, you know, as you know, I just recently moved to Atlanta literally a few weeks ago. So (laughs) just shy of two months ago. So I can't speak to, you know, what it is here, but why I chose Atlanta. I chose it because it's uh, probably the closest one can get to an African city in this country, predominantly black, predominantly, yeah, predominantly black and a lot of, a lot of black wealth and intellectual kind of communities that are, you know are here so and culture it's an industry city as well so it's kind of emerged yeah. in the last 10 years as a black hollywood but it's also yeah. historically been really an important music city as well so that's quite thrilling and so i chose it to be close to that because i think i thought that i would be able to move you know if not to la then i was very strongly looking at trying to live on the continent. And I think what I realized is, you know, Atlanta is a kind of a happy medium, at least for now during Mm COVID-19, you know, it feels Mm -hmm. good. It's also the cost of living is amazing. And it's uh, still close to a lot of dear family and New York city, which is where I've called home for longer than I'll say, but (laughs) a long time. So so Harlem, I was in, I lived in Brooklyn and in Harlem. And I was there because, you know, New York City, I'd always dreamed of living there. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, why don't we all want to live in New York? <laughs> right, 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 right. People ask me, I'm like, well, I visited and I knew I needed to live there. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's a center for all cultural, yeah. you know, energy and inspiration. And, you know, I'll say the one thing I always love about New York is it doesn't matter any day of the week, you can wake up and decide you're going to see world-class art in any discipline, in any genre, in any, and you can find it like top of the, like the highest levels Mm -hmm. and casually in the park, on the street, in the subway, or like, you know, in the museums, in the theaters, on the stages. So it's just a, a feast of culture. Yeah. And that to me is everything. I can't get that anywhere else. So, you know, right now that's obviously not the case in New York because of COVID and and obviously not the case here either. But I feel as though we have a lot to look forward to beyond COVID because I just know myself and just the arts community, we're like, you know, dying to get back on stage, you know? So it's, uh, you know, people keep talking about the roaring 20s, the rebirth of that, you know, like that Mm -hmm. we after the last pandemic. And so I think that we're going to see that in the years ahead, it's going to be a party, a global rave. (laughs) Right, right, right. So speaking of, you know, your industry during this time, what are some of your colleagues, your peers? How are you all communing? How are you surviving? How are you making it during this time? Well, I think that 
there's a range, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. dealing with it in different ways. So I can't, I'll speak to how I'm, I'm dealing with it. I think most people are trying to stay creative because that's what gives us strength. And it's also how we move through all of the, our emotions, you know, how we process our emotions and, you know, and the life that we live and the lives around ours. So I would say for myself, the first eight months of COVID, I was with my mom. I went to Illinois to make sure she wasn't alone, not realizing that it was going to end up being this long of a stretch. I would have probably made the same decision even if I did know that. But I think having that chance to have that sustained time with family was a real gift. I think most people probably would agree with that. It's been a real gift to have that kind of sustained time with loved ones. But I also think for me, it's been really important to stay creative. So I released that live album that you mentioned earlier, really as a way to stay connected to the thing that makes me feel most alive, which is when I'm on stage and Mm -hmm. performing. When I listen to the sound of, you know, public assembly, congregation, (laughs) you know, it was like, Wow, that sounds just so far away from where we are right now, you know, and it really helped me think about the room and think about and but more specifically, it it made me kind of I had a visceral energetic response to it in a way that that made me think about the fact that there's nothing else that gives that to me. There's nothing else that can make me feel that. And so I really released that as an offering to myself as a way to stay connected to that. And also Mm -hmm. as an offering to those who supported my journey and those who are longing to return to those sort of two cultural spaces. Mm -hmm. And also as an homage to the cultural spaces around the world, the stages, the theaters that have fallen silent in the midst of this pandemic. There's something really tragic about that. If you think about the sound of silence, it's pretty heartbreaking sound or idea that all of these stages are sitting in darkness right now. And it's also an offering to, it's also meant to be a meditation on what we hold to be. The album is called Holy Room. So it's really also this meditation on what we believe is sacred space. I mean, at the top of the pandemic, suddenly it was like our home, like where we took refuge, Mm -hmm. that was our sacred space. Like, how do we keep this place safe? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So and so it was really this meditation on what spaces we deem to be holy, you know, and whether that's a stage or our mothers or yeah. you know, just a private garden or friendships or whatever it might be, you know. So it's really meant to be this kind of larger meditation. And so for me, that was the intention of the project, but it was also frankly a way to it ended up, I'll say it ended up being some way for me to keep myself occupied and very busy. To, sure. be, to be thinking about a release and a project yeah. very different from the year I had planned, but you know, it's uh, definitely a gift. So it's been about making art, I think is what most of us are doing. I also made a film, an experimental art film called In the Absence of Things, which mm-hmm. is also about the feeling that we have, like how I've been trying to come to grips with like, who am I in the absence of the stage, of the living mm-hmm. stage? Who am mm-hmm. I in the absence of song for somebody other than myself? You know, yeah. So (laughs) it's been interesting, but I think the short answer is we all are making art to stay encouraged. Yeah. Uh, And connected in some ways, because I think that there's this whole new way that people are connecting and engaging on an ongoing basis. Yeah, Absolutely. I would also say that one of the gifts of this sort of sustained stretch of stillness and quietude has been, you know, even just releasing the, the record, I released it independently. It's my first independent release in a long, long, nice. long time. 
Um, it allowed you. and it got nominated. What? 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not to interrupt you. Yes, you. <laughs> no, but yeah, but I think you know it's also been an opportunity to look at what this digital era actually presents to artists, right? Like, what are these tools that are really available? The marketing tools, social media tools, all of the things that I often feel like I don't ever have the time to try to figure out for myself, which is why you end up being with a label, being with whoever, where they have people who are mm-hmm. focused on that. And so with right. all this time, it's allowed me to actually learn that and to kind of go into the back end of things and be like, oh, this is why this works. And this is why these analytics, and this is why, you know, even understanding the Grammys process in a different way or understanding sure. like there's so many different things that allow us to be more prepared for opportunity. And hopefully exponentially see the reap the rewards of that that preparedness mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so that's been great to really lean into infrastructure and understanding of the back end of the business in a way that i haven't had the time to do in a very long time right 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 so but i think you before the pandemic you had something huge planned already mm-hmm. so you you were planning to to open your first play mm-hmm. And so that, you know, was entirely put on hold. And so tell us more about, because that required, you were producer, right? And you were part of the talent. So you were already in the back end. So tell us a little bit more about that process, how you came to that project and tell yeah. us the name of the project. Sure. So <laughs> the project is called Dreaming Zenzile. It is a play about the great Miriam Makeba. For those who might not know who she is, it's the South African singer, activist, the, very, the late great First lady of African song, Mama Africa, as people belovedly call her or lovingly call her. I would say that I came to playwriting or theater making, let me say, because I'd say the last seven to eight years, I sort of, the way I would curate an album was always like these, it was always curated as sort of as these song cycles where it's like one theme and then everything is sort of around that theme. So when I moved to Lagos, Nigeria, for example, you know, the Lagos Music Salon was very much about the stories and of my journey in Lagos, right? And everything was about that place. You know, my last record before this live record was called Petite Afrique, and it was about African immigrants in the Petite Afrique, the African quarter in Harlem in New York City. And so every time in this sort of deep dive, what I realized, I really love this sort of anthropological, you know, to like bring it back to the, the earlier work, because I realized after this work began, people started saying, oh, this feels very ethnographic. Like there's an ethnographic approach to your research. And I wasn't trying to do it, but it was actually kind of a wonderful moment for me when people started feeling that because then I was like, oh, I'm finally actually like using Using your trade, your technical (laughs) training. Yeah. So that's been cool. But I would say, yeah, I mean, it is very much about that kind of how does place inform identity, right? How does place inform Mm -hmm. personhood? And so, which I think is an interesting thing to consider, even just thinking about the theme of this podcast, right? This idea of like, where we're from and how that informs how we see the world, live in the world, experience the world. And so that's very much, I think, what I'm always in pursuit of, like these kind of ordinary experiences that we have as African people or as Black people in the world, but how that informs this kind of larger, how those ordinary things actually speak this much larger and complex 
range of humanity of, of our, you know, the humanity of ourselves. And so I think essentially in writing those song cycles, essentially I was asking people to step into a world, step into Lagos and take and travel through all of these stories with me, step yeah. into Harlem and travel through all of these stories with me. And so in a way, that's what the world of theater does, right? It asks you to step into a world for a stretch of time. And so what I realized is I really was trying to create this multidimensional kind of space, you know, and I realized that there's something that's not multidimensional enough for me about songs. Songs are often ephemeral or they are ephemeral. They can be incredibly deep and vast and, you know, move people and you can listen to something on repeat for like a month (laughs) and want to just live in that place. But I think what I was interested in, like, how can I make these stories or that world of Lagos or that world of Harlem, how can I make that a more, you know, dimensional experience for people? You know, that's the magic of theater for me is you get to really intentionally step into the world, you know, beyond these ephemeral sort of fleeting things that you have to kind of string together in stories between the songs, which I would do anyway. But I realized I just wanted to really like build a world, I guess is the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one side of how I came to writing a play. But because I think I was on that journey anyway. But in terms of this particular play, I mean, Miriam Makeba is, you know, as I said earlier, the first lady of African song. And it is to me quite tragic that she's not exalted in the way that she should be, you know? I'm often shocked, but actually maybe not anymore, (laughs) but I'm often shocked (laughs) by the number of people who aren't familiar with her. You know, a lot of people from her generation and young generation now, and Africans and non-Africans, you know, it was always quite surprising to me, but then it speaks to this kind of violent cultural erasure that she went through when she married Stokely Carmichael at the height of the civil rights movement. And Stokely Carmichael, as you know, was a part of the Black Panther Party. And so they were essentially, after she was in exile from South Africa, she was blacklisted in the United States and her career was literally taken from her overnight. I mean, she went from being this huge, huge star to just, they just took it away from her. They were like, you can't be married to this person who is, you know, and think you can just be in the U.S., you know, on our radio stations and our, you know, and it was, so they shut it down and they left, they moved to West Africa, but she had an extraordinary, I mean, she sang at John F. Kennedy's birthday, same one that Marilyn Monroe sang at. She was, you know, friends with, best friends with Nina Simone. She was, you know, moving around. Harry Belafonte brought her over here. She was on the cover of Time Magazine in her first month. I mean, there's so many things. She was friends with Marlon Brando, like just an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary life. She was married to Hugh Masekela. She was, I said, married to Stokely Carmichael, just an extraordinary, extraordinary life. And literally that decision to marry a man who's, fight was the same as her own fight in South Africa. Mm-hmm. That, that choice, her career completely disappeared, which of course I'm sure, she, I mean, which of course wasn't like, it's not like she had regret. She's never, at least the, the literature I've read, the letters I've read, the books I've read and the conversations I've had, there's never a, a moment that she expresses regret, right? Because it's the same fight. Mm-hmm. So, but what happened is it wasn't until the 1980s with, with uh, Paul Simon, Graceland tour. When people mm-hmm. were like, oh, my God, Mary Makeba. Yeah. When she kind of came back, I'd say, into public consciousness in the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
But in Europe, Latin America, and even on the continent in Africa, people love her. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Germany, there are streets, schools <laughs> named after Miriam McCullough. It, it's amazing. I find it really interesting. It's specifically in the United States. So this work is very much about undoing the silence that shrouds her legacy. You know, it's just trying to offer some sort of homage to the woman, the person who I believe really made room for anybody, any African artist operating on the global cultural stage is mm. indebted to Miriam Makeba because she was the first. And so it's really meant to honor her dreaming Zenzile. And Zenzile is her first true name, her true first name, which means you have done it to yourself. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I can, hey. that, that part, I, I can go on and on and on. So yeah. we can, let's roll it in. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to when that can be seen on stage yeah. because it sounds like a beautiful offering. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit. Okay. And let me ask my global speak question. So this is where I ask what you hear. I like to ask you to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Well, the phrase that comes to mind, I mean, I won't speak on behalf of Georgia. <laughs> okay. It's too new, too new. <laughs> too new. But the phrase that comes to mind that I love is Turikumwe, which in Kinyaranda means we are together. Um, okay, say it again. Turikumwe. Turikumwe. There's something about, I don't even know how to, I mean, we are together is literal, but I don't know how to, tra- like the literal translation doesn't really do it justice. Although I still think that's yeah, quite poetic. often. But just this notion of solidarity, community, love, friendship, family. I mean, it expresses so many things Mm -hmm. and it can be said in such a casual way, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it represents a certain type of togetherness, you know, like we are together, but it's, yeah. I don't know if that's deeper than that, but I get it. No, because my, my last guest, she, she said something in Italian. There are so many expressions that don't have direct translations into English because English seems like, I feel like there's no expression in English that people can't make a direct translation for somehow, but somehow these other languages that have words that are more sentimental, I guess, that just show, encompass a real spirit more so than just the word or the symbolic nature of it. I think that it's just interesting. That's why I love language. I always like to ask people questions about language. So, so I like that. We are together, (laughs) which is what, how many syllables was that? That's like three syllables. Four. Four syllables. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's not the same. Okay, that's a nice one. So let me ask another kind of getting back into the freestyle of what you're doing and trends, motivations, all those things. You work with a group of people. So, you know, being an artist, you have to lead and bring people together. Tell us more about your experience with working with different musicians and how you've come to put together your band, because your band is phenomenal. I love them. They're wonderful. How did you all come together as one? Sure. Well, Firstly, I'll say I miss them dearly. They happen to listen to this (laughs) because, you know, we haven't played in so long now. But how did we come together? You know, every single member, I'll say that firstly, everybody was like, I met them in different ways through different people. Sometimes I saw somebody perform and sometimes I was just mentioning to a friend, oh, I'm looking for, you know, this type of person or I need this in the band. And they've like, oh, I saw this one guy play the other night or I know this person. So I'm really, really fortunate that a lot of 
my band members, we've been playing together for so long. We really have grown up in the business together. Mm -hmm. So that is joy. They're really, really family to me. And yeah, I was reflecting on that today with a friend, a musician friend in South Africa about this musician community really it really is a family, you know? So I would say, I mean, I, and I say that it's a bit profound only because we're always traveling and on the road, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't always see each other that often, but there's real love, you know, even those of us who don't perform together, but we get to see each other passing at a festival or at a club in the city or, you know, just they really- The kinship really of, of song. Yeah, or just of art, you know? Of really, art, yeah. yeah. So- in I'll speak about two of my band members who are on my latest record, Holy Room, because two of them accompanied me there, Hervé Samb and Toru Dodo. Toru mm-hmm. Dodo is Japanese. He's a pianist, came from Tokyo to study at Berkeley in Boston, moved to New York. I met him, I mentioned to a friend of mine, whom you know, Jeremiah, I mentioned to him years ago, like, oh, I really need to find a great pianist. I just have been, I haven't been able to find the right pianist for my band. He was like, I saw this amazing guy the other night. I took his card. Do you want to call him? (laughs) 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 Also, when we were just so young and new in New York, so you don't really have that. Like now if somebody's like pianist, I have like a list of people. Because I I remember your music before your band now. So that's why I'm like, this, you're you're now, it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, we go back. So I was like, okay. And I called him and he's such a wonderful, first of all, incredible musician, so mm-hmm. humble, so humble and just so gifted. Like, yeah. So anyway, that's how I met Toru. Uh-huh. And he is my brother. We've been playing together for a long time. So yeah. definitely this moment, you know, this nomination for both he and Hervé, the other person, I really celebrate it with them, you know, because they've been on this journey with me. Hervé is originally from Senegal, based in Paris, was in New York one day. Do you remember the zinc bar when we used yeah. to go to African nights on mm-hmm. Fridays? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So there was this always an African band or, you know, yeah. on Friday nights, Kaiso Dumbe was singing and these different players from mostly Cameroon were performing. And it was just a vibe. And one night I was there and this young guitarist just was killing it. And I was like, he was playing all this jazz. And I was like, who are you? you? <laughs> so I was like, hey, who are you? You know, and I just literally, that was probably the, like, what are you doing? Like, who are you? What are you doing here? I'd never seen an African musician play jazz. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Well and sure. play the African music that, that well. well. Sure. You know, yeah. so I was like, who are you? And by African, I'm just saying of like contemporaries, young yes. people in the, you know, in the yes. mix, not like mm-hmm. Mazakela and Abdullah right. and all those people. I'm saying like youngins, you know, yeah. <laughs> people yeah. who might be able to be in my band. Right. <laughs> So I was like, you know, hey, I've got a show next month at the Blue Note. It was my very first show there. I was like, are you going to be in town? (laughs) (laughs) He was like, no, but I could come back. And so began our, and he's never lived in New York. And Hervé and I played together all over the world all the time. And so the two of them, you know, they're my brothers. I mean, I, I can speak about all of the band, but like, I'll say those two's. Because we've played together the longest, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And because they're also a part of this record, and so I hope I answered the question. I'm yeah, not- yeah, 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 yeah. I just, you know, I'm always curious about that. And then speaking of other musicians, you mentioned Hugh Masekela. You had a very, I remember, I got to meet Uncle Hugh with you. Yes. <laughs> and where were we? Were, were we in Nigeria? Because okay, so we first met in Nigeria, and then we met again in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Because he was, yes. So there was always special times rolling with Somi from Nigeria. <laughs> but so tell us how, because he was definitely someone that was very special to you. Tell us how you came to be close with Uncle Hugh. Yeah, I met him in Brooklyn. <laughs> I had been to a couple of his concerts, but the first time I met him was in 2006, he was performing at Celebrate Brooklyn. Okay. No, 2005. Mm-hmm. Performing at Celebrate Brooklyn. And I went, a friend of mine came. I had just moved to Harlem, like literally just before that. And I had also just started grad school. It was just like, and my friend was like, Nana. I was like, oh, he must kill it. And I came, I remember I came down from Harlem and I was like feeling very stressed about getting back uptown to finish some work and get home before it's dark and all this stuff. And there was this long line to meet him after he had given this incredible concert. And I remember I was very like on the fence of like, if I stay, am I going to get home too late? And I remember she was just like, just stay. You you know, I had my demo with me. Yeah. And um, always a cheerleader. I love Lana. (laughs) Yes. And so I stayed and he had just come back from Uganda. I remember I'd been reading about it in the Ugandan press that he had been given a huge show there as a fundraiser for an orphanage in Kampala. Mm-hmm. And so somebody, I don't, there was this young man, Lucky, who used to work at uh, Madiba in- uh, Okay, I remember Lucky. Mm-hmm. He was like, he saw us, he waves us to the front. He's like, oh, okay, great. You know, <laughs> so we get up there and he's like, where are you from? You know, it's the first thing he says, because it's used sure. to African women. And tell him, and he's like, oh, I was just in Uganda. I was like, I know, and da-da-da, anyway. So he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm, I'm a singer. And I said, I actually have a demo that I'd love to give you a CD, you know, if you have any moment to listen to it, I would appreciate it, you know, this thing we used to have to do. Anyway, so he said, I promise I'll listen to it. And I said, okay. And he was just so lovely. I think the thing I love about Uncle Hugh is he was disarming, you know, with everybody he met. Just so much love. So, so much love. And so I said, okay. And about six months later, I was in Niger, I remember. And I internet was so dodgy. And anyway, so I went and I had this email that showed up from his daughter, Pula, who was working, who worked with him in his office and uh, who's now a very dear sister and friend. She was like, you know, I'm writing on behalf of Hugh Masekela and he would love to to meet with you. He's going to be in New York and this and this. And and so began our, our friendship. He became my greatest mentor and just, you know, decided that I had something to offer and was just really, I mean, I moved to Lagos after a conversation with him. First time I performed in Carnegie Hall was because he invited me to step on stage. Anyway, yeah. Wow, wow, yeah. wow, wow, wow. It's, it's hard for me to talk about, so, yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me move on to my mindset hack. So this is where I ask what your favorite or an innovative mindset hack is. So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. I would say music is my 
hack to centeredness, you know, mm-hmm. if we can talk about that as a mindset. I mean, I think for me, if I feel centered, I can kind of do anything. Yeah. Or I feel like I can do anything. <laughs> so, of course. Uh, yeah. I would say I, there are a couple of things. I mean, I meditate every morning, mm-hmm. which helps me even when I don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. If I take a moment mm-hmm. and meditate. And, you know, just it brings me back to center. And then music. Sometimes after a meditation, I might be like, okay, I'm in the right place. But in order for me to really get into a zone, and I've known this like my whole, even in college, like if I needed to get something done, bang out, of, I would just literally put in headphones. And, yeah. yeah, Which is yeah. interesting because it's certain tasks. I feel like as I become a professional musician, I can't listen to it all. It depends on what the task I'm, you know, it mm-hmm. has to be like, yeah, it has to be music that doesn't make me think too much, right? Like it doesn't ask me to pay attention to it, if you will. Sure. But my, like the music I always have on, like I probably listen to it a couple times a week is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. Okay. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Which not to say it doesn't make you think, but it puts you in a mood. And because perhaps I know the music so well that I'm not taken to like, oh, that's a new note. You know, I'm like. Right. Right. I'm kind of blue, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of music then, what are you listening to these days besides your own, you know, who are some of the artists that you, and I say that in the context of you have this wonderful Salon Africana, which is a showcase in many ways. I've been to many of your talks and you've highlighted so many artists from around Africa. Who are some of the up and coming musicians that you've been listening to and artists that you highlight in your work? Okay. In Solana, through Solana Africana, I would say mm-hmm. there are a few. I mean, I really, really love the scene in South Africa. Okay. Um, I know I mm-hmm. we've been talking about South Africans quite a bit, it seems on this call, but, <laughs> but <laughs> there's a, I think it's hugely because they have a longstanding jazz tradition of their own. Right. Right. So I feel most, it feels like a very easy feeling of home there. You know, I feel very understood artistically mm-hmm. there in a way that I don't think the scenes are as robust or even the audiences are as robust in other mm-hmm. countries or cities. I would agree. Mm-hmm. So there is extraordinary musicianship and artistry there. But I, that isn't to say that like, you know, I mentioned Hervé. Hervé has an amazing, my, in my band, Hervé Sam, the guitarist, he has an incredible group out of Dakar. Their whole thing is about creating a Senegalese approach to jazz music. His last record called Jazz Sabar. Um, jazz. Sabar. Sabar, oh, okay. There is, but out of South Africa, I'll say Nsaki. It's an amazing okay. vocalist. Zoe Modija. Great vocalist and guitarist, Nduduzo Makatini, pianist, who just became the first Africa-based artist signed to the historic Blue Note Records here in New York or in New York. I would say Julia Saar from Senegal. Mm-hmm. Beautiful vocalist. I mean, there's so many. I, I feel terrible if I don't say certain names because then sure. I know. But this is a good list. Our show notes for this podcast are wonderful. So <laughs> I like to put those down and then refer people to your site because you're always putting new people on and, and even in your socials. So it's all love. 
Okay, good. <laughs> it's all love. Okay, well, Somi, this has been a wonderful time spent together. Yes, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. So before we sign off, I always like to ask, you know, I was I asked about music, but I know you're also a big reader and maybe a little more love to a reader. So tell us, what are you reading these days or what are some of the best reads you've come across in your, your reading days? Wow. <laughs> I would say, what am I reading right now? I'm reading a lot of books on color therapy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. As I look at you in a bright pink sweater and teal, would you call your walls teal or just turquoise? They are teal. Yeah. Beautiful teal walls. So yes, color therapy. So tell us more. In this this camera. Uh (laughs) Color therapy and about how they're connected to our chakras. And, Ah. you know, I think I've always believed in color therapy, but I feel like I went through a stretch of years. Maybe this is just the New Yorker in me. I don't know. I went through a stretch of years where I was always buying black, which felt very Mm -hmm. counter to who I am. Mm -hmm. Like I'm always, I was always drawn to brighter colors. Anyway, this isn't so much about books, but the point is, People should explore and discover color therapy because I think it really does change energy. And I just think it's really important right now when we're inside yes. of our own spaces. Yeah. Right yeah. now when we can't journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in order to kind of activate different types of energy privately, you know, to consider color therapy or color energy, let's say that color energy. Mm-hmm. That's, what, mm-hmm. that's what I'm reading about color energy. Favorite books. I mean, I love... Tony Morrison so much. Mm-hmm. I love Edwidge Dantica so much. Mm-hmm. I love Chimamanda Adichie mm-hmm. so much. So I would say, yeah, I mean, and I guess I'm also reading some books on, I've recently read Poor Dad Rich Dad for the first time. Oh, okay. <laughs> An old classic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also, I'm currently reading Start Late, Finish Rich. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, you got to get those hustles on. So I don't know. Okay, that's a good variety. It's a good, variety. good, you know, month long <laughs> reading exploration <Yes. laughs> on recommendation. Okay. So any last words for our listeners today? My last words. When is this going to air? If this is airing in 2021? It is. It's airing in the next week or so. Well, I would say to stay encouraged. I think yes. a lot of our, I mean, I think the experience in COVID is very different on the continent, even though it's seeming to show up in other ways right now. Mm-hmm. But really, I would just be, you know, telling everybody to stay encouraged. I'd love to tell everybody to stay encouraged and to connect with the thing that makes you feel most alive. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, as a way to, to move through this time. And I look forward to being together. I look forward to giving you a hug, Flo. I know. I look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to those things. But yes. So, Zomi, thank you so much. So, like I said, folks, we have wonderful, rich show notes. And please check out Zomi's new album, The Holy Room, which is nominated for a Grammy. You can find it, please. Um, Where where should they buy it? Where can we buy it? Where's your Um, site? Tell us your social. It'll be in the show notes, but tell us your socials. Well, my website is somemusic.com. You can, I think you can buy it there. Yes. But really it's available anywhere. Bandcamp is where you can buy one of the limited physical copies and otherwise anywhere music is streamed Mm -hmm. or sold. Mm -hmm. Sold. Sold. (laughs) Apple. Yes. Um, Amazon, you know, 
where else? Oh, my socials are at Somi Music. So at S-O-M-I Music. Everything at Somi Music. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So folks, this has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. And my guess, I never said your full name. I feel so bad about it. My guest is Somi Kakoma. I love hey. it. It's a song. It's such a song. Yes. <laughs> so catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes. You can catch us at www.localcitizenspod.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. So please tell a friend, subscribe, listen in, share. And as always, Bye for now.